entrepreneurship is riddled with survivorship bias because most of the stories that you hear are success stories, obviously. But most of the time when you hear people talk, they're talking about, hey, how did you achieve that success? And the story usually goes, I tried this thing and that failed. And I tried this other thing and that failed. And then I tried this other thing and then that worked. And it's just, oh yeah, I just put all over here, this, and, oh, and look at this. Now I'm a billionaire, basically. And you don't hear about a lot of the other people that burn out, that fail, and then they never succeed, that have moderate success, but don't really have the type of success that's really worth bragging about or being interviewed about. There's this whole, I think, void, this kind of purgatory in entrepreneurship where something works well enough to where you don't want to kill it and stop working on it, but it doesn't work well enough to where it's like your thing and it's the super scalable thing that ends up becoming a multi-million dollar business. Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast for people sick of marketing bullshit. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you'll learn how to build a portfolio of small bets to gradually build or help to build a calm, independent, and profitable business. I first met my guest today four years ago when I said met virtually. He had actually reached out because he just had his first job in the marketing world and he wanted advice. And he also reached out to a lot more people in the space. And I was very impressed with that approach because frankly, it was the first time and I think the last time someone did that. Ever since the last four years, I saw my guests moving from small project to bigger project to bigger project to bigger project and frankly, being very envious of his output on the way he was doing marketing in public and all of that. So super happy to have you, Curry Hines, on board before you can say thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm just going to describe briefly the type of bets that you've been betting on. If you've done consulting for startups, you have a private community, you did courses, you do some angel investment, you started podcasts, plural, building your own SaaS now, and I'm probably forgetting half. So you've done fucked on over the last four years. And it's crazy. So yeah, anyway, welcome aboard, man. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me. Now I get to say that. <laughs> it's crazy. We were just talking about how it's been so long, but yeah, a lot can happen in the last couple of years. And so I happy to talk about all the small bets, all the failures, all the hard parts, all the easy parts, learnings, everything in between. So happy to be here. So how the fuck are you not burning out right now based on what you've done in the last four years? Well, I sort of am a little bit. <laughs> Spoiler alert, started to burst the bubble, but it's kind of impossible not to a little bit. I think I've realized, especially in the last six months to a year, probably that some people, I didn't really understand when entrepreneurs would say, oh, business is my hobby. And I just, I'm an entrepreneur. So starting businesses and my business is like the thing that I'm constantly thinking about. And I just adopted that mindset a little bit. And I think that I have because I've just been in such this rush and I've been so antsy to be in this build mode that I just staved off a lot of other hobbies and other things where I would maybe enjoy myself more or work on things that are doing them for the sake of the thing, not for the output of the thing or the result of the thing. And I've devoted a lot of time to writing newsletters and building courses and doing research and talking to people about ideas and building those ideas. Podcasting. Podcasting, yeah. Just and talking about it publicly. Right, yeah, a lot of tweeting, spending a lot of time tweeting. Doing talks. Doing talks, going on podcasts et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it does catch up to you after a while. I think especially because my whole goal this whole time has been, I want to start 
a SaaS company and I want it to be profitable and independent, but I want to do that on my own terms. I don't want to raise money. And I also don't want to do like this crazy kind of, I'm going to save up a bunch of money, go cold Turkey, and then just work on it full time and hope that it works type of idea, which I see a lot of people do. And I think they're crazy for it because I don't like that type of pressure on myself. The downside of my approach has been that I've just been juggling a lot of things in the air for a long time. And I'm still not quite there on the profitable independent SaaS company. So it starts to wear on you after a little while, because what I want to do is be able to just trim the fat, cut out a lot of this juggling act, and then become a one act man, if you will. And that just hasn't happened yet. Thanks for being so candid about it. As I said in the intro, I really admire you for that, looking up to you as well, based on the output and thinking to myself, I couldn't do that. And then I thought back about earlier in my career where I was juggling way more than I can now. And I've learned to actually do a lot of stuff to protect my mental health about it. I don't have emails on my phone. I don't have social media on my phone. I'm actually very anal about when I stop, I stop. I don't fucking check my computer. I don't fucking, now that I have a daughter as well, I don't work Fridays. So it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where I think of, about work a lot, but I don't do work. So I completely empathize with that. Before we go deeper into maybe the biggest mistakes you've made and what you would do differently, perhaps, which is maybe a good retrospective, a good postmortem, tell me more just briefly about this kind of stair-stepping way, right? Because you're one of the only one People I know who have been very public about doing it that way so diligently. So just tell me more about it for the context. Sure. Yeah, I stole it from Rob Walling. He's the host of Stars for the Rest of Us, and he co-founded Drip. I sold it. Now he has the Tiny Seed Fund and Accelerator for bootstrapped or semi-bootstrapped since they're taking money from Tiny Seed SaaS startups. And so his whole idea is, look, there's different levels of businesses that are different in difficulty essentially, and the difference in, in outcome and reward and, and really the skills that it takes to do those businesses. So you have like a, at the top of the ladder, at the top of the stairs, you might have a business like a marketplace, two-sided startup. And that's really difficult because you're basically running two startups at once and you need them both to start working at the same time in order to work holistically. And then one step down, you might have a SaaS company maybe like a D2C brand, like you have a product with multiple marketing channels with sustainable growth and room to scale, essentially. And then maybe the second rung, you have more of a productized service, consulting, agency. You might have an info product or set of info products with multiple channels. And then the step one is sort of like, where do you get started with all this? So you have a single distribution channel, kind of single product, business. It might be like a plugin for Shopify. It might be a course that you put on Udemy. It might be fill in the blank. You don't want to just try to step all the way up to step four from day one, because it's going to be impossible to reach and you're probably going to fall back down the stairs if you try. So you want to start with step one, step two, step three, step four, and that way you're climbing up the stairs sequentially in a way that makes sense depending on your skill level and your experience. So me trying to be a very self-aware and honest person thought, okay, my goal is to get to step three, start a SaaS company. I need to do step one and step two first. I need to start a course. I need to do like a job board. I need to do all these little things that help me gain the experience and the credibility for myself to be able to reach the next step, step two, do a little bit more productized consulting, maybe have multiple courses, multiple info products, 
maybe multiple plugins or a plugin or two. And then I can get to that step three, which is a SaaS company, the way that Rob outlines it. It's a lot of semantics. You can lay it out any which way. You can call it a ladder. You can call it a stairs. You can call it whatever you want. <laughs> whatever the but the idea was, yeah, I just want to start with something that is approachable. Once I get this base hit, then I can worry about trying to hit a home run the next time. So I've had a lot of base hits now. Yeah, it's like the very rational, thoughtful approach that you've embodied is, yeah, very unique. I found I don't have the discipline to do this. So I burned out when I did my first agency. I arguably, I should have started with something easier because I didn't have a network nor a reputation or whatever. But then when I worked for Hodjar, what I decided to do was like the foundation that I want is in people who actually want to hear from me. And so that's why I just did a podcast on the side and then starting the email list and whatever. So I can empathize with that. But your way of starting, like you're such a business mind, marketing mind, it's you went all in into that. I didn't. Maybe we can go back in time a bit so people understand your journey. Mm -hmm. And then maybe again, like the failures in particular, the wins, obviously, what you learned along the way and what you would advise people who are looking into doing something similar or help a founder or whatever do the same. So. Let's go back four years ago, if you can remember. So you were hired as the head of growth for a SaaS company called Biometrics, correct? That's right. So then what did you do? And then I just started tweeting and I started sharing stuff about what I was doing at Biometrics. That was like the first step for me was, I'm just going to start learning in public, quote unquote, and building some credibility in the space, becoming like an online personality, if you will. And honestly, I, I didn't really think like anything was going to come of it in the sense that I was going to build a newsletter and I actually didn't even have a newsletter until a couple of years later. I didn't really think I was going to be getting that many followers because I didn't even know how big the space was. I just thought I just need to be like sharing things out there so that it's out of my brain and maybe a couple people will pick it up and it'll help me build my network of all things. I just want to meet other smart people. Again, you had mentioned that I had reached out to you when I had first started asking for advice. And so I'd begun to do that and immediately saw a lot of the benefits of getting people's advice, hearing the stories, getting the kind of behind the scenes raw. Oh, well, here's actually what happened. And let me give you some advice so you don't make the same mistake. And I just thought, I want to continue doing that. So I did that for about a year or two, just focus on my job. While still working there, right? Yeah, still working at Metrics, just sharing things. But within Barometrics as well, I was trying to build some credibility as myself because Josh, the CEO of Barometrics, the founder, later sold the company. He was a very public figure and one of the startup guys, one of the bootstrapper guys. And so I felt very much like, okay, who's going to listen to me if now I'm the one being like the face of Barometrics in a way, sending out all the emails and being in the pop-up and the intercom widget, doing feature announcements. And et cetera, et cetera, reaching out to get on calls and trial conversions and upgrades and things like that. I need to be someone that people want to hear from. And so I just need to start sending it, building up that credibility. And I knew that Barometrics would be a good place for me to do that. And that it was actually necessary for me to do that in order to have success at Barometrics. And so I started writing more on the Barometrics blog, again, tweeting, running webinars and kind of these workshops upgrading our newsletter, going through a lot of different things that essentially were a symbiotic relationship of like me taking things that I was learning from Barometrics customers so that I could turn that around in the benefit of Barometrics customers and for my own online persona, if you will. And so when I was there, that's really my whole focus was. 
Yeah, again, very smart, right? And I think at the time, the timing was almost perfect for the trend of learning in public, building in public. It was shit hot at the time. Yeah. Right now, it's like any fucking tactic that fucking marketers get their hand onto. It's definitely getting into a point where it's just people are used to it. It's not that sexy. But mm -hmm. you did it when it was very sexy and you kept at it. And definitely I saw you networking very quickly, being able to like really build a solid reputation for yourself on the solid network very fast. So if we just look at that phase for folks who are in-house marketers or, or working in-house and are thinking of doing their own thing, which is frankly the vast majority of people nowadays, to have the freedom to do whatever the fuck they want and whatever. What's the number one failure in that stage or the one mistake that you tell people to avoid? I can get to the transition out of Metrics. That was definitely, I think, the point at which I failed to capitalize fully on the most important thing that it should have been, which was having like an owned audience for me to draw from. So I'd been tweeting this whole time, building my audience on Metrics, and then I just left it all with Metrics. I took my Twitter following, which at the time I think was only like three or four or 5,000 followers, maybe, which for some people might sound like a lot, but when you're actually trying to drive people to buy things, it's not that many people. So I didn't start my newsletter until just a couple months earlier, and it was only around 500 people. I should have been really driving that home before I left Metrics, and probably doing that a lot earlier. So for me, if you want to take the leap, if you want to really make the most of an opportunity where you're working in-house and you can reshare a lot of those learnings to other people. Do that early and often. I had this newsletter that I was doing that I got burnt out on. I was like, ah, newsletters, those don't really work. Where it was like the TLDR on SaaS marketing. And it was this roundup kind of curated bunch of links on SaaS marketing content. Again, me just trying to repurpose things that I was already doing, trying to stay in the game and, and upgrade my game in, in SaaS marketing. I got up to a thousand subscribers and I was like, this is going nowhere. I don't know why I'm still doing this. So I dropped it, but I should have just been doing something else in the first place, which is just all the like raw case studies, learnings, experiences through the newsletter and building up earlier. What do you mean by raw case studies? Hey, here's literally what I did. Let me just break down this thing. I was in Google search console and I found that the sitemap wasn't properly indexed. And I don't know, like you can get as tactical as you want as long as you're literally showing all the raw details of something that you're doing. And that's so difficult to do. So let's pause here because I think mindset here is very important. I know many people, and I know it's the same for you, reaching out and saying that they don't feel like they're experts and therefore not only that, so they don't feel there is anything valuable to share, but not only that, but if you tell them to share the sawdust, the actual thing you're doing, the mistakes, they feel like actually I'm going to be seen as a fucking moron who doesn't know anything. So. What's your response to that? How do you convince people to do the opposite of that and actually fucking do it? One, I think people should realize that most people are very imbalanced in their skill set. You might see someone as like a marketing guru, but that might be a marketing guru in only one specific discipline like SEO. And then they might not have any idea how to do anything outside of that. If you put them on ads, they'd be completely lost like a beginner or anything else. When you're learning all these things in public, you're just rounding out the things that are maybe outside of your core competency and helping people who are also trying to learn things outside of their core competency as well. The other thing is that no one really cares. Like it's going out and dancing. Everyone's always worried about oh, who's going to see me and watch me and who's going to make fun of the way that I'm dancing. But everyone has that same mindset. 
And no one actually cares what anyone else looks like when they're dancing. So the guy who's out there just having fun actually is the one who doesn't care about anyone else. And he probably does look the dumbest, but no one cares. And actually people admire them because they're the ones who are free. They see that they're free from those judgments. That's called the spotlight effect. So we overestimate how much yeah. people notice about us. It's a proven thing. Exactly. So you learn in public and you think, oh, I'm exposing how much I don't know. But in reality, people just admire the things that you are learning. They have the courage to share those learnings. And they're probably going to be impressed with the things that you're learning anyways, because we always underestimate how much we know as well. What I found is that even if people think they know about topics, that sometimes just rephrasing it in a specific way or having a different angle to it sometimes just is enough because repetition is key, which is the other thing. So many people are afraid of repeating themselves, but it's the opposite. You have to repeat yourself. So just find 1000 different ways to say the same thing over and over again. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't hit home until the 15th time you say it. And that's the other reason why learning in public is so powerful. The other thing about it too is it's the curse of knowledge. We always forget how much we do know and we have a hard time explaining what we know because we assume that everyone knows it already. Knows it as well. It's like table stakes now. But I see this all the time where going back to the example that I just gave briefly about Google Search Console, like I've been really digging into some nerdy SEO stuff far more than I have in the past. I still very much feel like a beginner. And the other day I was like telling someone at a meetup what I was doing and they were like, what's Google Search Console? <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, I thought I was the beginner. But again, we always forget how much we do know. It's that curse of knowledge where you just, you're like, oh, I can't assume anything about what people know. And it actually helps when you realize how much people don't know, you're trying to teach it to someone else because then you can't assume anything. And that's really where a lot of the learnings come from is when you just start from scratch and you're like, listen, there's this thing called Google Search Console. Google uses it to track all the things, they index your site, they'll give you all this feedback. Here's how you use it. And then you go into all the things that you're learning. And that's what people really want to hear from you about. They need all the context. And another thing is new people enter your industry every day, which is something that helped me a lot as well, which is like they start as beginners, like from the very, very start. And so it's a constant new stream of new people like that as well. So it's not like a static thing where people stay that way, which also helped with that. Okay. So that's a very good kind of lesson for this first stage. We are talking about having an owned media, uh, having a place you can call home digitally where you quote unquote own email addresses or whatever. So maybe we can briefly give examples of what that means. So typically an email list would be one, a podcast could be another, even though it's way more difficult to sell on a podcast. What else could be owned? Anything that you have a direct line of communication with your audience that's not going to be skewed by an algorithm or censorship or any sort of gatekeeper, however you want to define that. So for me, I think that it's email is the number one, RSS feed for a podcast is number two. I think an online community or a private group is number three, whether that's over, you know, Telegram or Slack or a circle group, whatever that looks like. Number three, you might even have a private video subscription. There's a lot of tools out there that do that these days as well. I just saw one, a new one pop up by our friends who are over at Hopin. It's called Audience Plus. And uh, that one looks really cool. It's basically like this kind of media hub that you can, in a box, if you really want to, you can start to build channels and a lot of people to subscribe and get updates to new content. 
But those are the big three, I would say. Like email list has to be number one, absolutely. It's classic. It's got like that Lindy effect where it's been around the longest and it just continues to be a part of people's everyday lives. So it just will continue to be a part of people's everyday lives forever. And it's so hard to change. Like social media changes all the time with new content formats and algorithms and how people want it to work, trying to make recommendations and making the feed smarter and more engaging and profile. People always jumping from one social media platform to another as well. They'll swear off Twitter and then they'll jump to LinkedIn and they'll swear off LinkedIn and go back to Twitter. And email just stays the same. There is no email competitor. Slack tried to be like the competitor. They're not really the competitor. They're very different things. Emails around forever. So I just always tell people, start an email list, have an email list and have a regular communication with the email list as well, because then people know that you exist and you're utilizing the email list. This was another mistake that I made going back to that transition period was I had this old newsletter, TLDR and SaaS marketing, got up to a thousand subscribers, shut it down. And then a year later, I was like, oh, I'm going to start this new thing called Swipe Files. But shoot, I haven't talked to that old newsletter list in a year. So I can't really use them. So I just was starting from scratch again. And even if it was like, hey, a quarterly email, hey, here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm learning. Here's a roundup of just life updates, professional updates, random links that I found helpful. Anything is better than nothing. Great learning. When you transitioned to go full-time, do your own thing, how did you make money? Most directly, just by consulting. So I picked up Mike, my main consulting client, who was great throughout was Savvy Cal with Derek Reimer. Started with him when we were at like 500 or $1,000 in MRR and then skills way beyond that. And that was basically the unlock for me to be able to make about the same amount of money as I was full-time working half as much. So then I had half of my week to devote to my own things. I can work on my newsletter, my SaaS projects, my other random things that I'm trying to pick up. I'd actually also had a really intense stint doing a lot of coaching where it wasn't like me consulting with the company and then doing the work or even telling them what to do. It was more just like Q&A video sessions like this where people subscribe to a weekly, bi-weekly or monthly call. And I think at one point I had 12 or 13 and that got intense where it was basically like one or two days a week was also just doing that, being on Zoom calls all day long and answering questions and follow up after that. How much were you charging for that roughly? What was the model? Not enough, but originally I was charging 200, 400 and 800 for monthly, biweekly or weekly. And then that ended up doubling. And that was specifically for early stage SaaS founders, really? Yeah, mostly early stage. There were also other people that were like, hey, here's my particular situation. We're already doing X amount of revenue, but I want your help on this. And so I'd take them on and it was still a good fit. Okay. And how did you get those people? Because again, from the perspective of people listening, most of them were not in your situation. How did you find those people? Was it from your mm -hmm. Twitter in particular or the network you had built? Yeah, it was all Twitter. And when I had made my announcement leaving Bear Metrics and talking about what I was going to do next and my approach, me being a marketer, I made a big scuffle about it and <laughs> made it into its own thing and treated it like a feature announcement for myself, where I talked about, here's why I'm leaving, here's what I'm doing next. If you want to be involved, if you want to follow along, do these things or check out these pages, book a call with me to learn more about X, Y, and Z. And so a lot of those consulting clients came from that announcement. A lot of the coaching clients, then I would kind of like all the consulting interest, I would just funnel into the coaching because what I realized was like 
the consulting I was doing with StabbyCal part-time was again, like enough to just like a baseline of, okay, all of our expenses are covered. I can live, but I can't really do that twice, but I want to do a little bit more just to gain the experience and gain a little bit, fill my time a little bit more with more productized services as one of the things I wanted to experiment with. And so this whole coaching model ended up being the thing that kind of filled that gap because I could do it one to two days a week, mainly like one day a week. And um, it was all from Twitter. So at that stage, what's the biggest mistake of that stage? Would you say, how would you do things differently? How would you do things differently? At that time, I was really just throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what stuck. And it was a catch-22 because what I found was I was, when something did start to stick, sometimes I didn't want that thing to be the thing that stuck. And so the coaching was one of them where I didn't plan on taking on 13 clients, but I was still trying to figure things out with swipe files and the newsletter and the online community. I had nothing going on the SaaS side of things yet. And I was like, oh, let me just see where this goes and how this is. And in theory, it sounded nice because it was like, oh, I can also double the amount of money that I make. I can save that by an extra one day a week of work and going on Zoom calls. And that one day a week drained me completely for all my creative energy the rest of the week because it was just the Zoom calls and these really intense brainstorming sessions. And I wasn't actually seeing the result of the work that I was trying to put in. It was just like, okay, great, thanks. We'll report on that later. And then sometimes there wouldn't even be an update. So it's hard to feel like I was doing something right. So I had to make a really hard decision to then wind that down so that I could refocus myself on the other small bets I wanted to make, like improving the newsletter, starting to get some traction on the SaaS side of things, and just experimenting with other products. The services definitely took up a lot of time and it was great. And I'm glad that there was a lot of interest and that worked out for a period, but I only lasted about six months doing that. And then I just realized like, I'm kind of just turning, spinning my wheels. I'm on a treadmill right now. I don't want to keep doing this and I can't make progress in the other things until I stop doing this. So I got to just pull the cord. It's so interesting because, as you said, it's a catch-22. So in one sense, when you're early enough in your career, like you were, you do need to expose your brain and mind to different things to see what you like to do, to learn about yourself and to become the person you want to be. You do need to do that. But on the other hand, doing that, sometimes you discover pretty quickly that it's not for you and it fucks you up. For me, the things that I discovered over years that are not for me are like managing communities, like going on circle and fucking replying to comments or doing engagement, posting new shit. I can't do it. It's just, I cannot do it. I just can't fucking do it. I found in the same way. Spoiler alert, we'll get to that, but. Yeah, I remember hearing that, but we can talk about that in a few minutes. But what I took for granted that really energized me was to actually do what we're doing right now, which is the improvisation, having real discussion with people, yet challenging them to learn as much as I could, or coaching people live in group coaching setting. But yeah, I don't know if you agree, so let me know, but. It feels like the advice here is really to fucking keep going, even though it's rough and it feels like a lot of work because that's when you're going to learn what you actually love to do or actually what you hate doing. Oh yeah, no, entirely. I did a lot of, found a lot of things I didn't like doing and a lot of things also that I didn't find out I didn't like doing until a lot later, but I still had to go and put in the time and do the work to figure those things out. And I also learned a lot about myself and just like, I remember there was an initial period where I thought, okay, once I leave Barometrics, I'm going to start consulting. I'm going to have so much time. I'm not going to have to worry about 
my obligation with my full-time job and the image and what I say. And it's everything's about me. All the time goes to me. And then I remember sitting down at my desk like the next week and just being like, what do I do? <laughs> what happens next? And it wasn't that I needed someone to tell me what to do. It was just that there were so many things to do that it was overwhelming and it was hard to really figure out how to spend my time, honestly, because I was in such this rush and I just wanted to start doing stuff and shipping things. And then I ended up just stalling out a little bit and falling back onto coaching and consulting. So anyways, to answer your question and just reiterate, like you, I think it's very important. It's a lot like finding a career in the same sense, because you're like, dude, who really knows what they want to do when they're five years old, let alone 18 years old, you just have to go and try and do stuff. And I think most of us still are like, do I really love what I do sometimes? But you just have to go and keep going. What's the point of stopping? And it doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, I'm thinking back in myself when I was 17, graduating from high school and trying to think about what I would do next. And yeah, I went for mechanical engineering at the time because I wanted to build wind turbines. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but the six months after, I wanted to do something else or whatever. And in France, at least, this belief that you just have to pick that thing in high school and then you stick to it your entire career is still very much ingrained as today. And I completely agree with you. It's fucking bullshit. No, the right way is just fucking stuff mm -hmm. and then you figure out so i figured out i fucking hated mechanical engineering with a passion i like the numbers and, and the science like i definitely was very curious about that but i fucking i just couldn't see myself becoming an engineer and then i realized hold on i've done a few new websites for friends when i was in high school just for fun at the very start of you could get the domain for free with your high-speed internet provider or whatever and then I connected the dots, you know, I was like, fuck, you take that for granted because you just like it. But actually that's the shit you like. Hmm. So yeah, it just takes time on this view of this one career and that's it's just blasé, passé, whatever French word you can use. One more note on that really quick. It's just entrepreneurship is riddled with survivorship bias, I think. Because most of the stories that you hear are success stories, obviously, because people don't want to hear about the catastrophic failures, unless it's in like a Netflix documentary style and it's this giant implosion that's fun to watch. But most of the time when you hear people talk, they're talking about, hey, how did you achieve that success? And the story usually goes, I tried this thing and that failed, and I tried this other thing and that failed, and then I tried this other thing and then that worked. And it's just, oh yeah, I just put all over here, this, and, oh, and look at this, now I'm a billionaire, basically. And you don't hear about a lot of the other people that burn out, that fail, and then they never succeed, that have moderate success, but don't really have the type of success that's really worth bragging about or being interviewed about. There's this whole, I think, void, this kind of purgatory in entrepreneurship where something works well enough to where you don't want to kill it and stop working on it, but it doesn't work well enough to where it's like your thing and it's the super scalable thing that ends up becoming a multi-million dollar business. And that's the hardest part of it is what do you do when your thing plateaus at $1,000 a month in revenue or $10,000 a month in revenue? What do you do when you feel like you can't scale yourself out of consulting. What do you do when you feel like you've tapped out all your marketing channels in your course business and you want to keep growing and or you need to keep growing in order to keep up with life expenses or other things like that? You know, want to keep scaling the team, et cetera. That to me is the hardest part. And it's kind of part of that learning as well. I just really realized this is going to be messy and I just got to keep going. I don't know what's going to happen, but 
this is a lot messier than I thought. That's the thing right there. The survivorship bias really like self-select just a, those case studies that are perfect and perfection or whatever. And what I've learned working for myself, consulting, coaching, working for other startups, startups that struggle, startups like Hotjar that didn't struggle, is that the common thing is what you said. It's fucking messy. It's chaotic. It might seem perfect in the outside. It's always fucking chaotic. Once you embrace that, you know that it's it's just going to be okay. You just need to deal with uncertainty because that's the only thing that you know for sure is going to happen. And you have to have this trust in yourself that whatever's going to happen, you're going to figure shit out. And once you have that, then you'll be okay. But it took me years to get to that point of knowing that whatever the fuck happens, I'll figure it out. Yeah. That confidence takes time to build. Totally. Yeah. And it's still the struggle, right? I'm like in the messy middle right now. Hopefully I can like maybe see the light at the end, of the end of the tunnel. I think it might be an illusion. We'll see. But again, like I just, you just have to keep going, keep walking, keep trying to follow that. And especially I think the way that I'm doing it in a sustainable way, going back to my original vision, like I tried to stay really true to, this is my plan. This is how I'm going to tackle things. If it's going to work, this is how it's going to work. It's going to work on my terms. I'm not going to raise money. I'm not going to go all in into something and just do the digital nomad thing and live in Thailand for a thousand dollars a month. I'm going to try to have my cake and eat it too, in a sense, where I still have one foot into security and then one foot is in the entrepreneurial experimental world. Yeah, it just fucking takes time. Stage three then. I'm very curious to talk about the right now of today, but I want to go through every stages before. You went back and forth between not coaching, coaching, realizing that actually there is a void in, in your days, like you need to get busy. That's when you started Swap File. What was it when you started it? It was February 2020. So literally right in the cusp of the pandemic. And so started a couple of other things, but that was like the thing that ended up becoming my success in that year. So what was your initial thing? What was your initial offering? Again, everything changes. It's all very messy. So originally Swipe Files, hence the name, started as a weekly teardown of landing pages, emails, and ads. And basically me doing a commentary, kind of line by line, section by section of what I liked about a piece of marketing, really is what it came down to. And I did it for... 50 weeks straight for a whole year. And then again, figured, I don't know if this is really super <laughs> scalable. It seems like it's plateauing. I'm getting tired about talking about the same things. And like, me learning in public, I felt like I've gotten all that I want personally out of this project. Maybe other people have it and they want more, but I'm tired of doing this. And I can't see myself continue to do this for the next five to 10 years. So let me think about other stuff. And this was when I was a part of a, at this time, so this was about a year later also, I had joined a mastermind with a couple of other creators who had info products and newsletters and communities and stuff like that. And they were really pushing me like, hey, why do you really insist on marketing in general? Why don't you just really focus on what you're known for and what you seem to have the most experience in and the most interest in, which is SaaS marketing, B2B SaaS marketing, even more particularly early stage B2B SaaS marketing. And we might have even had an exchange about this at some point over Twitter DMs or something. I'm actually on it because I had this itch I needed to fucking scratch with you for so long because that exactly like I say in the DM and on Twitter, I said it's testament to your building in public thing that I know about it, that I want to tell you about it. But I tell you, I think you could grow way more with a more precise, congruent, spicy positioning. And then you said the podcast, I said, no, everything. 
And then you said, yeah, it's been a struggle to exactly articulate the differentiation. And then later on, I told you I would go one step further because I think you went into, you talked about SaaS marketing. And then I told you I would even go one step further and say that you're an early stage slash bootstrap SaaS specialist. I don't think you find much joy dealing with big SaaS companies. And then you say, oh yeah, you're probably right. So I have this, the little, that's a success in my book. So you had this, you were part of a mastermind as well. And they basically also said the same thing, right? Yeah. Everyone was saying the same thing, dude, you got to niche down. You got to really focus in on a specific type of company and person at a specific stage as well. And I don't know why I was fighting that so much. I don't think I wanted to be like the early stage SaaS marketing guy for whatever reason. Let's dig into that. Let's dig into that because again, that's something that I know people listening have in their head. They are afraid that their identity is their entire like human homo sapiens person is going to be associated with that thing. They just can't let go of that. And so therefore they stay wide because, oh, I'm finding so many different interests. I can't niche down. So tell me more maybe about, I've influenced you there maybe by giving a few stuff, but the time, why do you feel you were resisting it that much? I think it's because I wanted to be, I wanted to be bigger than what I thought that ceiling would max me out of being the X for Y guy. I wanted to be a big personality. I wanted to be like micro famous. I wanted something that would be like a real runaway success, not like a, this is pretty good and it's going to make me happy. And really I lost track of the original purpose, which was, this is another step in the staircase that I need to climb. It's not the end all be all what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's a means to an end in a sense, which kind of degrades it in a way, but it's not really my intent there. I wanted to have a giant newsletter. I was watching people start podcasts that would blow up and I was watching people start newsletters that would blow up and oh my God, a year later, now they have a million dollar or a million subscriber newsletter and they have a $10 million fund and they're being invited to talk on CNBC and like all the cool things. And I just thought I could do that. What's the way that I can do that? I can't box myself into being the early stage SaaS marketing guy. And then, yeah, it's just like reality. I think the other part too is there were so many trends happening from like 2020 through 2022. Even now, I feel like we're in it where it was like, first it was remote work and then it was no code. And then it was like newsletters and community and the creator economy. And then it was crypto and now it's AI. And for a while, I was just jumping from thing to thing. I was like, okay, I'm going to really go in on like the creator economy side of things. And I want to be like a giant creator. So that was part of what it was influencing why I was resisting. That was, I just wanted to be like a really successful creator, quote unquote. I really appreciate you being so honest and candid about this because this is the true kind of irrational needs that we have as humans. We want to yeah. feel like we're keeping up with the Joneses. We want to feel like worthwhile for ourselves. Our self-worth is linked to this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, you forgot about why you started this stuff in the first place, which is more about the process rather than the outcome. And it's like you forgot to do things for yourself first and you started to be selfish in the wrong way, like meaning thinking of the success and how big you could be instead of focusing on the process of today and shipping shit and learning and doing it all over again. Is that a good summary? Yeah, entirely. I lost track of doing the thing for the sake of the thing instead of what it gets me and the outcome of that thing. So you ended up actually positioning yourself that way, right? You ended up really going deeper. So what changed your mind? Why did you do it? One, I felt like I was also hitting a wall with that strategy. So I'm like, you know what? I don't know if I have what it takes to really go that route. And I realized like long-term, 
I would have to really commit myself to that route and I would have to forego the idea of a SaaS company one day. Like that would be maybe be like a nice thing, but I was just like, if I'm really going to go for this whole creator thing, I have to go for it. That has to be like the big thing that I swing for the fences for the home run that I'm looking to hit. I don't know if I really want to do that. And number two, there were just so many people in my ear giving me the same exact advice that it was humbling. And I thought I didn't need to listen to people that I think are smarter than me. And I, I can't just ignore these people. Like, I think that they probably are right. So whether I can see it or not, I'm just going to listen to them and you get a piece of humble pie. I just want to go back to this portion of the fears that were like, never, I'm never going to be a millionaire, billionaire type thing because the niche is so small. Do you still believe that today? Yes and no. Again, I think I see things a little bit more on a spectrum. What I was thinking before was I want to be ginormous. I want to be famous. I want to make an entire huge business around the thing. I want to be the marketing guy, right? I don't want to just be the early stage SaaS marketing guy. I want to be the marketing guy. And I realized one, I think that market is bigger than I originally anticipated. And two, I don't want everything that comes with being the marketing guy. I think that a lot of people underestimate how big niches can be. And one of the unlocks for me was also just talking with a lot of other creators and realizing their struggles when they're selling, selling things to people who are broke, struggling, super needy. I was like, man, SaaS businesses are actually like really easy to sell to. SaaS marketers are well-paid, funded. They need things fast and quick. And this is actually like a pretty good market. So it's hard to say like ubiquitously, oh yeah, like always niche down and that's always a good advice. That's probably true for most cases. But I just mean in the sense that I realized how good of a market early stage SaaS businesses are because of all the dynamics that come along with it and that like I wasn't seeing it for what it truly was. That's so interesting. I'm going to try to go in my sub file of information and just give a, a bit more advice on this part because I think people misunderstand the concept of niching down. It doesn't necessarily mean niching down on very specific firmographic demographic group like early stage SaaS founders, sometimes it could be a need that is quite specific and horizontal that could touch on different demographics. But this idea of focus, you know, to be completely honest, right now, I'm actually looking at niching down further. Like to give maybe folks listening a perspective, stand the fuck out as an idea is, I didn't foresee that to become anything that people would use in their own email and stuff like that, but it is happening. It's not like a fucking movement or anything. Definitely it, it sticks, right? But it's very... Why? The methodology uses like first principles, so anyone can really apply it like genuinely and then make it down. However, for my own business and like what I do, like consulting and, and courses and future stuff I'm going to try, it's too wide. It's like a massive, the way I see it is a massive fucking square. Like it's the, inter the intersection is too big for me. And so what I've noticed when you look at the people that you like to serve, I did a bit of startup stuff in the last few months, but I fucking hate it. Not that I hate the startup. It's just too businessy, too many like words and vocabulary around business and SaaS and whatever that I just, I just can't do it. And the people that I actually fucking love serving are what I would call marketing creators, like folks selling products and or services related to marketing, freelancers, consultants, shit like that. And it turns out that those people are most of my clients anyway which is so funny. It doesn't mean that the way I've made peace with it and then I've stopped talking was I see the podcast, the newsletter I have as top of the funnel stuff, meaning it's all about reach. It's trying to reach as many people as possible who 
have the same belief than me, but I know that it's not only going to be marketing creators. So that's necessary to grow. That's been proven by scientific research over decades of a different markets. You have to grow. You need to reach way more people than you think. However, your services doesn't mean that you need to keep them wide. And so it's okay to go very narrow for a specific group. So it's the balancing acts, meaning you can still talk about SaaS in general and marketing in general to reach a lot of people, but you also need to tie it down for a while. Does it make sense? Oh, entirely. And I think an interesting unlock too is you just never realize how people are niching down that you think are these really broad people. Yeah. Um, I was just listening to how I built this with Guy Raz and he had, what was it? He had a company on, or a founder of a company on, and he was like, we never usually talk about this type of company or this industry. And I was like, oh my gosh, they don't. Like <laughs> how I built this is actually in a niche. They have a specific type of founder of companies that they target and they talk to and others that they just completely ignore. Whoa, I never thought about that. Cause I would have thought how I built this guy Raz, like one of the prime examples of how you can just be like, a business podcast and be amazing. But no, Guy Raz has a niche. So anyways, sometimes you don't really even realize or see the niche that people operate in. And that also influences how you view your own niche. Yeah. And I think that comes from that balancing act between rich type positioning to make money. You need to really know how to balance the two properly. And usually the commonality between the two, the wide audience that might not be your buyers versus the people who actually pay money and you enjoy working with is usually around psychographics and beliefs. So it's like, what do they believe or what do you want them to believe and what do they have in common in terms of belief system? And usually that unlocks the top of the funnel because you can talk about stuff everyone agrees with or disagrees strongly and then go deeper into the niche. I agree. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's always the right advice. It's like, listen to people who are smarter than you. They know what they're talking about. These experiences and stuff we're talking about now, like you can't just blow it off and think that you're the exception. Yeah, it's exactly. It's 99% of the time. That's also a cognitive bias of people thinking, I'm different. I say that advice to everyone else, but I don't do it for myself. Just an example of a crazy niche. Like I remember a subscriber of mine replied to one of my email around that topic. So there's a company called Wizardline Technologies and they only serve Domino's franchises, that's it. Mm -hmm. And they don't just serve them doing everything. No, they do, I think, specifically sales reporting for them. So hmm. it's, yeah, reporting and automation platform. So they automate payroll insurance, that's it, for Domino's wow. franchises and probably <laughs> just in the US, right? And they make between, the guy who was working with them before, they make between five to 10 million annual recurring revenue with five employees. So it's let go of those fucking, I'm never going to be a billionaire or whatever. A lot of people are making a lot of money by just focusing on a tiny subset of people. And you can make millions and tens of millions yeah. literally by just being focused. Yeah. What's happened since I've niched down is I've got a lot more sales, a lot more members, but the newsletter especially has really taken off. I was really struggling still around that like three to 5,000 subscriber mark. I think I was at around 10,000 followers on Twitter. And it just felt like it was a grind. Like I was adding, I don't know, two to 300 subscribers per month. And just, man, am I ever going to make this scale as a newsletter? Niche down, really started talking about it. Got some partnerships that opened up because of the niche that I operated in, because there was more like specialty. It was like, hey, if you want this, then go subscribe to this person's newsletter. And now it's scaled up to 19,000. Gonna hit 20,000 pretty soon. To me, that's one of my proudest accomplishments, honestly, 
because I feel like it's so hard to grow a newsletter that's actually engaged and has, especially like skills beyond that 10,000 people mark. And it's all because I niche down. It feels like it would be in reverse, but it's not. Okay, so we are like we were at stage three or four now. Are we talking about today now? The stage you are in right now? Sure. Yeah, I think so. Really, the stage of things we're at now is I feel like I throw out a lot of spaghetti at the wall. Some things have stuck. Some things have intentionally tore down <laughs> from the wall. But now I feel like I'm at a stage where there are some things working moderately well that I just want to keep working on, and I'm going to hold back the temptation, the impulse to keep starting new things just for the sake of those new things. Don't get me wrong. There are still new things coming, but they've been coming for a while. And I'm going to continue to push those to the finish line and to launch them and to work on those things. But now like I'm in the SaaS game, which is the most important part of everything. So I have a great founder named Connor. We have a SaaS product called Swipe. We have revenue, we have growth, we have really cool features. We have a fun customer base. We're still finding our way around product market fit and scaling and all that kind of jazz. But the most important part is that I've gotten to this stage now and it has a lot of potential. And even then, even if that's not the thing, I think it very much could be, but I'm just saying objectively, that's not the thing. That's another experience that I'm having under my belt of just having started something in SaaS. Because for a while it was like, man, I could not get my foot in the door. There was partnerships that didn't work out. There were ideas that didn't work out. There was a lot of this sort of like, starting a SaaS company is very difficult. <laughs> I don't know how people do it all the time. It's just like, this is a hard game to play. It's like trying to play Dark Souls on the most difficult level. And then you're like, this is the best game ever. Man, are you a psychopath? This is crazy. Always trying to validate ideas, always trying to sell. Technology is really hard to keep up with. Of course, it is a lot of fun. I love it. I think it's super, super interesting. But all that to say, now having started something from scratch that does have revenue, like that in and of itself, I'm also going to take that win under my belt because that took a long time for me to get there. And now that I'm here, I feel like, okay, I can see this. I can understand this. I think I could do it again if I needed to or wanted to. It's funny. I don't know if funny is the right word, but it's very interesting to hear your perspective about yourself and how you talk about this because you said it took a long time. It's only four fucking years. That feels you know, like so long to me. Most of the things that you're doing, very few people on earth have done. It's easy to be in our fucking bubble where everyone's a fucking newsletter, yeah, 50,000 yeah. subscribers, but it's one of the toughest things to do. And it's very rare when you start talking to people who are like your neighbors and whatever, and you talk about podcasts or chat GPT or whatever, and they're like, the fuck is that? It's just, it's, we are in a bubble. So I think I'll share another unsolicited advice to you is uh, be kind to yourself. You mm -hmm. seem to be very tough on yourself, not in a way that you wouldn't be with friends or whatever. Oh, I yeah. said that to you and I said that to myself as well. I know what you're thinking in your head and it's not easy. It's true. It's hard to give credit, but the thing about that in and of itself, again, that you have to take those wins in order to keep going as well, because that can be one of the other things is you're just constantly dissatisfied with yourself and your progress that becomes unmotivating to keep working on those things. But yeah, I'm reminded every time I hang out with friends, I am the only person I have ever met out of my San Diego friends, colleagues, family, friends of friends. I'm the only person I've ever met to have started a newsletter or like a software project ever. Again, on Twitter, everyone <laughs> that mom has a newsletter and a software project. 
everyone's working on something in AI. Everyone has a bazillion followers that makes a bazillion dollars and has a, a micro fund and whatever. Here in San Diego, I am the only person I've ever met. So yeah, sometimes that win. And it's fucking San Diego. It's California. It's not fucking yeah, exactly. middle of nowhere. It's quite techy there as opposed to the average, right? Yeah. Totally. And it, same for me. My wife always makes the joke about in France where no one knows what Chandler does for work. Or in How I Met Your Mother, where, what's his face, the blonde guy, same thing, they don't know what he's doing. And I've tried to explain it. Nope, doesn't stick <laughs> to no one. So yeah, it's fun to go out of the bubble. And then you realize how much you've done because making money on your own, just in front of your computer and stuff, fuck, it's very, very rough. And you've mm -hmm. done it. So, mm -hmm. Corey, you've been a pleasure, man. Thanks for your honesty. Yeah, I love the, the candid conversation. Thanks for allowing me just to spill my guts and show what it's been like and what it is like to just be in the thick of it. So I appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah. And I think a lot of people will resonate with what you said. I really appreciate you being so candid because again, I think it's this kind of stuff that no one really talks about or dare to talk about. So where can people learn more from you, reach out, subscribe to your stuff? Yeah. Two best places probably are going to be in my personal site, which has a list of like all the different things I'm working on and links to everything. It's Corey. It's a huge fucking list. Sorry to put it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Corey. So, so, so C-O-R-E-Y dot CO, right? Correct. Yeah. Unlike that list is just, I was looking at it again <laughs> to prepare for the conversation and it's like what I'm working on. 50 fucking stuff. You fucking madman. I need to have a graveyard too, because there's been a lot you of other things that have just come and gone and been in the past, but feel free to DM me anytime on Twitter. I don't check my email all that much, so I'm not going to get my email out, but find me on Twitter at Corey Haynes Co. And I love to chat with people there. I'll probably follow you if you're interested, but <laughs> I'm also just talking about all the things I'm doing all the time on Twitter. So if you want just like a feed of things related to me, then find me on Twitter. Nice, man. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.